0: I've always tried to live a transparent life, well, since becoming a Christian, I should say. Um, And so I confess this morning that the sermon you're going to hear is not original with me. In fact, I'm plagiarizing the entire sermon. If you want to get up and walk out, I understand We are in the Gospel of John, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And when I say that I'm plagiarizing a sermon, what I mean is that I want to give full credit to its author. God is the author. In fact, Jesus preached this sermon, tailor-made for one man, applicable to all men. And in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, we see and we read Jesus' sermon to a man named Nicodemus. And what follows in verses 16 through 21 is the writer of the Gospel of John, the apostle, his theological reflections on this text, this sermon. So he thinks practically, he makes observations of what Jesus is saying. So really, in a nutshell, all these verses, these 21 verses in John chapter 3 are a sermon and application. And so this is perhaps one of, outside of when we get to uh, John 17, this is one of the most uh, awesome passages and also humbling passages to preach. If anybody has ever been at a sporting event with the, the name NFL, you've either watched it on TV or you've been at a real game, you've probably no doubt seen John 3.16 in one end zone or another. Probably the most widely known verse in all of Scripture outside of judge not lest ye be judged, right? And so this morning we're going to take a a fresh look at what may be a familiar passage, but again I hope that you will hear it as a message of from Jesus to all people. It's in two parts, as I've already made clear. The first part is the actual sermon of Jesus, verses 1 through 15, and it's a simple point that he's trying to make, and I'm not going to add to it. It's, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. To put that in reverse order, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's Jesus' whole point in the first 15 verses. And then we see in verses 16 through 21 is John gives an explanation. Well, why is this good news rejected by so many? And how is it that some actually believe it? He reflects on this in verses 16 through 21. So, I don't have a real catchy brief explanation or a point if you want to write it down in your notes as John is trying to give an explanation for why people reject and why some believe. So here, let's dig into this passage. Um, You'll find it if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, the blue Bibles in the chair around you, um, they are there for your taking, your benefit, a gift from South Canyon to you. Uh, We're on page 887 and 888 this morning, and if you want to follow along, it will help you understand as we work through this text this morning. Please follow along as I read from God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know That you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you notice that? This is the point of the sermon. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not see where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly. Truly. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let's pause there for a moment, and let's work through Jesus' sermon. So there's some terms that we need to address here in verse 1, a man named... uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now the Pharisees were the Bible expositors of their day. Some might even say they were good Baptists. They were very, very concerned about taking the Scripture and making sure the people of Israel understood how the Scripture applied to every aspect of their life. I mean, it would get so granular, literally granular, that they would encourage people to tithe of their mint and cumin. And there was... This herbs that you would have. Can you imagine that? Here's how much you need to separate out and give to the support of the temple and the priests. Here's how much you can keep for yourself. This is going to be an offering to the Lord. They, they gave a lot of moral instruction and a lot of practical instruction. And in a lot of ways, what they did for the people of Israel was a good, good thing. They connected God's Word to life With the hope that God's people would follow it with their whole heart. Over time, that emphasis did lead to some abuses because they started adding tradition, the speaking, and the ideas of greater rabbis and the teaching of these rabbis, and they would kind of pile it up, and it became more authoritative or as authoritative as God's own Word. And so now people are just responding and being taught, here's what man says, and God's Word is kind of like hidden behind it all. It says that He was a ruler of the Jews, which means He was one of the 70 All Israel, although they were scattered all over the nations, within Jerusalem, there was still a ruling class within the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin. So we're told that Nicodemus is one of the 70. He is a real political leader, and he is a spiritual leader, and what does he do? He comes to Jesus at night to talk to him. Now, a lot of commentators beat Nicodemus up. He was afraid of the gospel. He did not want anybody to know that he was coming because, after all, he is bona fide. Jesus, Jesus is a rogue preacher. He's got no credentials. Nicodemus, he's the real deal. He's cut from the elite cloth. And what would that look like to all of those followers if they see him walking over and talking to Jesus and, and engaging this illegitimate prophet, this this rogue rabbi, and and you have someone who comes from status, and he's asking this guy for counsel? Other people think he was afraid that he was going to lose his following. Not just the embarrassment of the greater speaking to a lesser, but he's got pretense, and he's got an image to keep up. I don't know. Maybe here's a third alternative as though we needed to know exactly why Nicodemus came. Obviously he came because he had a question. Maybe he came at night because that was the time of day, not to do stuff that was just in the dark that nobody would see, but Jesus' ministry would wind down. It would give them time to actually have a conversation where there wouldn't be thousands of people crowding Jesus and asking him to heal them or asking questions. And so this was an uninterrupted season where they could have a conversation, maybe peer-to-peer. In any event, that's what we see in the first couple verses. But let's look at his question in verse 2. Well, it's not really a question, is it? He says, "We We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, we saw last week in chapter 2 that the, the wedding that Jesus attended in Cana, that water that was turned to wine was the first sign that Jesus did. We haven't read any other signs. And then John is telling us that Nicodemus says, we're watching all these signs and we're, we're like, something's up with this guy. No one can do them unless he's from God. And again, I think it makes the argument that the apostle wrote his gospel in a way to make a point. He is not following a chronological timeline. And so don't let that discourage you if you wonder and see between these two chapters a difference. But he does say two things about God or about Jesus. He's a teacher come from God and that God is with him. Hold on to that, because we will come back to that in a couple verses. Nicodemus also speaks to Jesus, and he says that we see these miracles, but we're struggling with your teaching. We we don't really see how all this fits together. And Jesus, he takes all this flattery, oh, you are from God, God is with you, and he brushes it immediately aside in verse 3, and he says, truly, truly. That, that little saying is, is like us saying today, what I'm about to say is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is truth you need to listen to. Hear what I'm saying now, Jesus says, because I'm about to lay something down you need to pick up. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, There's a couple big things here that we're going to spend some time on, and then we'll keep moving. The kingdom of God was the full aspirational ideal for every Jew. The kingdom of God was was not nirvana. It wasn't some uh, ethereal kind of concept or idea. It was going to be a legitimate kingdom and rule It would include God being with his people. It would include his man on the throne for everlasting to everlasting. It would mean Israel is no longer attacked and controlled by her enemies. That there are real borders and there would be real laws and real righteousness. And every Jew longed for this day. And they believed that because they were Jews by birth, It was their inheritance. And Jesus is saying to this man who is a teacher of the Jews, unless you are born again, you will not see that ideal, that dream, that hope that you have held on to. Now this is pretty profound, what Jesus says. This pointed remark he connects being born again with the kingdom of God, and what he does by doing that is we learn that rebirth is actually from above. It is divine. Nicodemus missed this, which is why he says what he does in verse 4. How can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? This is an impossibility. Jesus, and it's not just that he's wondering how you put a six-foot person back into his mother's belly. He's, he's He knows that Jesus is speaking metaphorically about that. But what Nicodemus is struggling with is this. Jewish teaching and Jewish idea was that you and your life, every day as you live, you are growing, you are maturing, and you ought to be achieving more and more for the kingdom. He's He's not an idiot. He's got great education, He's stupefied. How could this take place, even spiritually speaking, is impossible for Nicodemus. You see, the Pharisees were convinced that by observing the law and the traditions of the elders, it would, that was the only path to salvation. And this is a man who'd spent his entire life doing this. And Jesus addressed this head-on by stating that unless you are born again, you will not see God's salvation. Further, rabbinical teaching believed that you are the sum of all your previous days, which means you have learned from your experiences. They have made you who you are. And that is true. And now Jesus is saying your past isn't who you are. Your past is not going to help you get into heaven. Your past, in fact, doesn't matter at all It doesn't increase your standing before God. Everyone must be born again. Everyone must start new. Now, if you're here this morning and your past, like mine, is checkered with all kinds of regret, all kinds of guilt, all kinds of sin, let me just tell you this is a word of life. What Jesus is saying is that you can be saved and not saved from all of your troubles, you owe $100,000 in credit card debt, and then you get Jesus and all that debt's erased. I'm not talking about that. There are consequences in this world we all have to deal with. There is a payday to sin. But I'm saying there is a salvation that Jesus promises that when you and I stand before the Father and give an account that Christ's blood will be poured out upon us. We will be washed and made new. And that is something you cannot buy at the corner drugstore. You cannot get this in a back street alley. You cannot work your way to this point. Each and every one of us must enter into that humbling experience of a spiritual rebirth. So as we move on to verse 5, Jesus affirms, Yet again, with the truly, truly. What I'm telling you is the absolute truth, Nicodemus. I'm going to expand on what I said in verse 3 just briefly. Rebirth comes of water and spirit. Now, water, I think, likely symbolizes the baptizer, John's call for repentance. An outward sign within the Jewish religion and culture was you wash yourself with water as a sign of, I'm going to leave this old way behind and I'm going to go a new direction. And John had been calling the people of God to that. It was a sign of their repentance. You come back tonight, and you'll get to hear Jordan Muth speak from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, on the water. And he can answer all the hard questions, Okay. It's interesting that Jesus talks about water here in verse 5 and the Spirit. But then as he moves forward, he only talks about the Spirit. Jordan can explain all that. I'm sure he's got it all figured out. Come back tonight, 5 o'clock. But hear, hear these words from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Man, if you have been running from God Let me just tell you, there is no sweeter words than to hear God say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. There is a sweetness in our Savior. He will not exploit your weakness. He will wash you. He will cleanse you, and if you have struggled with going back on your, your commitments, your, your yearly vows that you make, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to set these goals for myself, and you fail like we all do, and you are discouraged by that, then hear from Jesus. He will put within you not only a new heart to want to do the right things, but his own spirit which empowers you to do those things. You don't have to go to the New Testament to hear this. Did you hear what I said? This is an Ezekiel, an Old Testament prophet. So the idea that the Old Testament God is just this angry, grumpy old dude, and then the, Jesus is the pacifier, and he makes everything smooth out all of his father's rough edges, this is the heart of God for his people. But well, we need to keep going. Jesus challenged Nicodemus to forsake all he had been taught And all that he had taught. And to embrace what Jesus was teaching. Some of the hardest people to reach are those who think that they have arrived. I mean, we all have our blind spots, right? Teachers aren't always good students. Parents aren't always good listeners. You know, we're used to dispensing Wisdom, we're used to giving out commands, instructions. And then we have to submit ourselves to someone who is wiser, more knowledgeable. Jesus is saying, Nico, Nico, listen to me. Everything you've heard, everything you've been taught, I want you to know it all points to me. And I want you to listen to what I am telling you. Verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That Spirit comes from above. That, he says in verse 6, which is born of the flesh is flesh. Human effort is of no value in this effort to obtain the kingdom of heaven. What you need is to be born of the Spirit, to experience the Spirit. We believe we can make ourselves like God. The innate blind spot of all humanity is that we can achieve things in our own strength, that we can clean ourselves up, that we can accomplish things on our own. Whether we believe there's a God or not, that this life is something that we've just got to learn to manage and massage, and then we can control it and we can get the outcome that we desire. And Jesus is telling this ruler, this teacher of teachers, no, you can't. Any and all who enter must be made new by God's Spirit. A divine event must take place in your life. I've tripped in a lot of holes mowing grass, and you know the grass is tall, and you don't realize there's like this ankle buster in your yard. There is no one who falls into the the new life. There are no accidental conversions. None of us are ever saved not knowing that we were saved. There is a cataclysmic, life-altering change that takes place. Now, granted, some of us have been converted when we were young, and our knowledge of sin, it does feel like we've just grown up knowing God, and we have a sweet communion with Him, and we walk with Him. But don't mistake that for what I'm saying. True conversion is a transfer of a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. The weakness of our human will to the divine empowerment of a spirit-filled person. True conversion means that you and I have new ambitions and new desires. And even when our old nature fights against it, it can't win, not for long anyway, because the greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. This is what true conversion is. And so, this is a real check for us because this is the greatest fear of any elder in every church. That people who come in and out week after week who believe they inherited the gospel. You grew up at South Canyon. This church will be celebrating its 70th anniversary, I think, in this October. Some of us have been here for decades. And so the real, the real struggle is, well, I grew up here. I went to all the Sunday school. I did youth camp. I did this and that. And I'm just a Christian by proxy. And so we want to challenge every one of us to examine ourselves. Have we truly repented? Do we understand what repentance really means? Have we experienced genuine conversion? Simply put, have you been born again, made new? Verse six, Jesus is very clear. This effort is not of the flesh. It cannot produce, the flesh cannot produce what we need from the Spirit. We are condemned. And what is of the earth cannot make anything other than what it is. We need heaven to come down to us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is yet again a reminder that the kingdom of God is first spiritual and not physical. Now something must have, Jesus must have read the body language of Nicodemus because verse 7 says, don't, you know, he's like, don't be shocked by this. We haven't heard Nico say anything. But Jesus is like, I see what you're saying. I I see the expression on your face. You you are now hearing me tell you, Nicodemus, that you must be born again, and you're struggling with this. This individual response that we must have. He says, don't be shocked. I, I, I had a conversation this last week. Why isn't Jesus, like sometimes in the, in the other Gospels, he's interacting with people and they're like, he speaks kind of in code, right? Uses parables, or they'll ask him a point-blank question, and then he goes off in of here, and you're just like, oh man, why didn't he just say it? Like, you know, peel back the shirt and put the big S on it. You know, he is the Savior. Claim it. Don't run from it. But just be bold and say it loud and proud, Right? Well, Jesus does that for reasons, but this is one of those occasions where he speaks plainly. And what he's doing here with this teacher of Israel, this ruler, is telling him, you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. As we look at verse 8, I want to just share a couple Old Testament passages that bring light to this. Ecclesiastes 11.5. This mystery, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is that? Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb." Of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Jesus alluded to Ezekiel 36 in verse 5, and I believe here he's referencing Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 9, he tells his prophet to go out to this valley, and this is. Image. This is vision. Uh, thing. Time. There's a valley, and it's full of dry bones. And God tells His prophet, "Prophesy to the breath." Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. This valley of dry bones is knit together with tendons and sinews and then muscle and then skin. And then he is to prophesy over these dead bodies so that they may have life. From the Spirit of God. This is an Old Testament image of what it is for us to understand what salvation is, what true conversion is. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul said. But we have been made alive together in Christ. Jesus is making this analogy between the effects of the wind and the effects of the Spirit. In days before meteorology, you didn't know it was coming from the north, or we were getting all the smoke from Canada. You just wondered what was going on, right? There was no ability or understanding on how to control the wind. Everyone could see its effects. And so we hear it. We feel it. We see it blow grass and trees. We see it create waves on still bodies of water. We see it moving clouds. Well, the same can be said of the Spirit of God. We cannot control Him. Nor do we understand all the ways in which the Spirit of God works but we can see its effects in people's lives. True conversion isn't just me saying I'm a follower of Jesus, but it's the Spirit dwelling in us. And then all of a sudden, we are so changed that we demonstrate true conversion. Our hearts are different. Our affections have changed. Our attitudes have changed. The change that the Spirit alone can bring to human hearts is undeniable and it's unmistakable. Now, again, Nicodemus says, this doesn't make any sense to me. And Jesus gently rebukes him in verses 9 and 10. You teach others and yet you do not understand these things? Why why don't you understand that no one is able to come to God by their own strength, by their own righteousness? Again, we see just how persuasive pervasive this idea of a self-righteous way of living is, an independence of God. And this teacher of Israel had all the same scriptures that Jesus is drawing from in allusions, and yet he didn't put two and two together. He was convinced that he could earn his way to heaven, and Jesus is gently but clearly and pointedly pointing him to the fact, you cannot See the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot live in it, participate in it, enjoy its blessings and its benefits. You will not be a citizen unless you are born again. For the, first, for the third time in verse 11, we see Jesus with the, the truly, truly. He basically says to Nicodemus, I want you to put your trust in me. Look there, he says... I say to you, we speak of what we know. Did you notice that when you read through this passage this week? All of a sudden, Jesus is using the plural. Who is the we? Has he got a mouse in his pocket, a parrot on his shoulder? Who is the we? Well, he says this, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Is Jesus talking about John, the baptizer, and he, Jesus, his public ministries? Hey, man, we're all preaching the same message, and you're, you're rejecting us. Or is Jesus, because we know this isn't chronological, is Jesus, having done all these signs and his disciples going out and preaching and teaching, is he talking about the we of them, the disciples and Jesus? Or perhaps it is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and The Spirit who are bearing witness to the uniqueness of Christ. And the we that comes from above, the we that is not of the flesh, has been conveying truth to its creation. This holy God who spoke all things into existence is now entered into his creation and manifested himself by taking on flesh. The light has come into the darkness and the world hated it. And it is the heavenly testimony that Nicodemus and others like him are struggling with. This idea that there is a divine authority to whom we must give an account. This idea that there is a day of reckoning, that we are not our own. This is a struggle that we have today as well. We have all this technology, we have all these opportunities, and we struggle with the idea that we can control our destiny, our future. We struggle with the idea that there is anyone to whom we're accountable for. We're Americans, aren't we? A land of freedom. We've got even in some of our state logos, don't tread on me. We don't take anything from anybody. And yet, we're being told that there will be a day. Jesus says to him in verse 12 If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Here it is, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is telling him his testimony must be believed. And what Jesus has done by this ascending, descending from heaven, the we of bearing witness, the testimony that you're rejecting, Jesus has now placed himself beside God's word as truth to be followed truth to order your life around. He has joined God's truth with himself, and he is making himself the object of our faith. Don't mistake the fact that Jesus is very clear. You need to trust me. You need to believe in me. You need to believe that I am from God and that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. One commentator helps us make sense of verse 13, because this idea of ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven really makes no sense to us. Why is Jesus talking about uh, all this in this context? Here's why. This comes from D.A. Carson's commentary on on verse 13, the book of John. He says, "...the Judaism of Jesus' day circulated many stories of bygone saints." who had ascended into heaven, received special insight into God's ways and plans. And many of those stories focused on the person of Moses. And here's what Jesus is saying. Poke, the balloon has just popped. I'm telling you, nobody's done that. I know your stories. Whether they're they're to make us feel good or whether they are to give us a carrot to keep ch- chasing this idea that we can somehow clean ourselves enough up that God will say, come in, you're welcome here. I want you to know that no one has ever ascended to heaven in such a way as to be able to return and talk about those heavenly things. Only in heaven can true wisdom be found. And Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, you need to adopt the attitude of what we read of the Agar, the son, not Hagar, the comic guy, but Agar, the son of Jacob. This is Proverbs chapter 30 in verse 3. I have not learned wisdom, this man said, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He goes on to say, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Nobody has. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? You see, Nicodemus, I think Jesus is pulling on a thread that Nicodemus didn't know he made this comment. You go back to verse 2. Remember I said Nicodemus said two things about Jesus It's going to come into play? Here's where I think it is. Look at verse 2. He said Jesus came from God and that God is with him. And Jesus takes what may have been a slip of the tongue from Nicodemus and he applies it further than Nicodemus ever even thought. Jesus has declared himself to be from God and he has declared him to be Himself to be the Son of Man. And from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, if you have those blue Bibles, it's on page 745. These words define who the Son of Man is because it's not an insignificant little phrase. The prophet Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And notice, Follow along, is what, this is what the Son of Man does. He comes to the Ancient of Days, no mistake about who that is, it is God, and was presented before him, and then to the Son of Man who was presented to the Ancient of Days, was given a dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is taking that language and that truth that he has been sent by the Ancient of Days to establish a kingdom here, and that kingdom begins in your heart and your life. It is an enduring kingdom, and he is saying, That all speaks to me. Jesus is not an average Joe. He is not just one of the many rabbinical teachers of ancient Judaism. He is the unique Son of God to which we must all one day give an account. And we will order our lives around Him either today in submission to Him or on that day when we are dismissed from His presence. Who can ascend to heaven? No one but the Son of Man who came from heaven to earth. And then Jesus, He quotes from Numbers Chapter 21, look at verse 14 and 15. He begins this uses this image. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This goes back to Numbers 21. Uh, That is on page 129 in those blue Bibles, in case you needed to look that up or write it down for later and stick it in that blue Bible and carry it home with you. Numbers 21 is this story where a sinful people accused God of doing an injustice to them. God's divine judgment came upon these sinners in the form of fiery serpents who were in the camp, biting people, and they were dying. The people then see what is happening, and they respond with this plea for mercy and a confession of sin. We have done wronged. Moses pray for us, plead with God to rescue us lest we perish. And so God responds to the cry of confession, the cry of repentance, and the plea of mercy. And he tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent that looks like those serpents that had been sneaking into tents and biting people. And he says, put it up on a staff and tell people, here's what God said, you look at this. If you've been bitten, you look at this and you will not die. You see the image that Jesus is using? The Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a cross. We've got three of them there. He's going to be hung on that cross. And if you look at Him and you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Eternal life is the promise through Christ. Let's jump to our conclusion. John 3:16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. that his works have been carried out in God. God has worked in such a way in sharing his sermon with Nicodemus that John wants to reflect on this. And so briefly, and I mean briefly, I promise, here's some practical and theological things for us to wrestle with in these verses. Why did God send Jesus into the world? What was... What was God's motivation? What inspired him to do this? What prompted him to do it? Was it that people were crying out, like in Numbers 21, forgive us for our sins, we need a Savior? No. God sent people into the world because he loves sinners. That's what we see in verse 16. Love is the nature of God. It prompted His intervention to rescue us. And why is Jesus here? And what is the nature of His first coming? In verse 17, it is not to bring judgment because we are already under judgment. In verse 18, our Creator, the One who made us, is also our judge. And everyone is already sinned enough To get a death sentence. This is a hard, hard word to share. In a world where we want to be positive and encouraging. In a world where nobody wants to be told, you're not a winner because we give them all trophies. The hard reality is that each and every one of us have sinned against God and we are already under condemnation. I mean, just think practically, how has sin worked for you? I mean, what good has it really resulted in? You can get ahead temporarily. You can enjoy it for a season. But there's always a payday someday. It always comes around like a serpent to bite you, like a scorpion to sting you. There's always a toll that has to be paid. And it never turns out good. Relationships are destroyed, Careers are lost. Livelihoods are lost. Money is lost. Stuff is broken. Your body is broken. Addictions are formed. Sin is its own condemnation in this life, but there is an even greater condemnation in the life to come. Our worst day here, in fact, a lifetime of bad days here, will pale in comparison to eternity apart from God. And this is the sobering reality. Jesus didn't come. He didn't come to point out sin and say, here's how all of you are bums and to tell us that we're all under judgment because we know in our own souls that this world is not right. It is not ordered right. Injustice prevails. Justice is trampled in the streets. Wrong, wrong prevails while right fails. There is might that abuses there's no idea or there's no argument to say that we are not under condemnation. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is, this is, I came to give life and life more abundantly. I came to call people to this life who is myself. Look at verse 19 and we learn about the human heart. Verse 19 is really, really hard. Because when you hear the fact that there is hope and it's in Jesus, why not run to that? Why don't all people become Christians? Here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. What do we learn about the human condition? It's this. We love our sin more than the Savior. Isaiah 30, verse 9 says, They're a rebellious people. They are lying children. Children who are unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Who says, they say to their seers, their prophets, Don't see. And don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave God's way. Turn aside from the path. Let's no more hear about this Holy One of Israel. This was the ancient people of God. Jeremiah 5 says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it this way. Maybe that describes your nature. I want to resist what's right. I want to fight and pull back from it. And then we are told here's the reason why they reject the light. Not only do they love their sin, they don't want it to be exposed for what it is, but they actually hate the light. This is why Christians around this world are suffering for the name of Jesus, because the light is hated. And if that happens to you, don't, don't take on the posture of, hey, I'm a subjected person and I'm a minority and then I have to like, shrink back into the dark recesses of the whole and no longer raise my head in society. No, be bold that you are identified with the sufferings of Christ. Don't be ashamed to be named as one of his followers. You are not on the losing side of history. Christ will rule and reign. They hate the light. They rebel against it. They are not acquainted with its ways. They do not want to stay on its paths. And those who come to the light, look at verse 21. We close with this. There's this positive shift that John makes. How is it? If, if, if we, by nature, love our darkness, love our sin more than the Savior, and in fact, if we actually hate the light... How is it that any of us are saved? Well, you look at verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now that is John reflecting on what Jesus has said. And let me just sympathize or synthesize it for you very clearly. He is not speaking of a merit-based salvation. It's not those that do right get righteousness. He's saying that those who come to the light, those who place their faith in Christ, those who believe He is the Son of Man sent from God's own presence to give salvation to those who are under a judgment sentence, then God has promised that they will do works because they've been filled with the Spirit and God will get the glory so that it may be clearly seen that our works have been carried out in God. He is the one who helps us. He is the one who enables us. He is the one who is calling us to come to the light. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Your posture. Your response to Jesus. His sermon. John's Reflections. We must be born again. It is not something we can do in our own strength. We need the Spirit to change our hearts. And that means a war within our own flesh. Are we willing to lay down ourselves for Christ? Is He calling us to come into the light, to embrace Him, to truly be born again? Or are we seeing the defenses go up again? Yet again, we will fight this. We will not give in. Lord God, we pray that you would win the war of each and every heart that is in here. We pray that you would let none perish, but that all would come to repentance. Lord, we pray for a special anointing in such a way that the, the Spirit of God will bring understanding and conviction. Lord, we're even thankful for the fact that while Nicodemus here in this chapter is questioning how, how is it that your pedigree doesn't matter, your, your past doesn't matter with God, whether it's good or bad, that we all need to be born again, we're thankful that his story doesn't end there. Twice more we will see him in the gospel, and he is there to care for the body of Jesus after his death. It's clear he becomes a follower. Lord, we thank you that that shows each of us that we too can be saved. We too can believe in the one who gives eternal life. We pray, Lord, that we would hold to this truth and understand that the gospel is not just something that happens to us in a moment, but that we are called to live out the gospel each day, and that we need it because we struggle with the guilt. We struggle with sin still. We struggle with an identity of I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I ought to do. And so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, Lord, and we do that today. We pray that your work would move in us. And even as we come to the table with rejoicing that in Christ we have been reconciled to God, that we can share this table together, that it can be a time of somber reflection that Christ gave his life. He who knew no sin became sin for us. But there's also this joy that you promised that we will share this table in your kingdom. That kingdom that we will see because you have made us born again. You've washed us and cleansed us. Lord, we thank you for this word and we pray that its blessing would fill our hearts and occupy our minds even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.